When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we're taking a look at the recent Netflix film, Munich, The Edge of War. And we are joined by Wesley Liversay from the History of the Second World War podcast, who recently produced a nine-part series on the Munich Agreement. So who better to join us to get into this one? Wesley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, letting me talk about movies for a bit. I love watching movies and I rarely get a chance to talk about them. And it just so happened that this came out, you know, two weeks after my nine-part series on the Munich Agreement, which was not planned at all, but is interesting that it happened. Really well-timed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So Matt, do you want to talk us through cast? I'll do production and we'll get into the meat of it. Sure. First, I'll note that the premise of the film is it's a, a fictional side story to the agreements that were signed in Munich um, in 1938. And it's got an interesting cast. I think it has a very uh, strong cast in that it's both British and German. Um, so we're drawing on two significant talent pools. The, the lead name associated with the, with the film is, is Jamie Irons, who has been in dozens of very good films. You know, he's, he's, a, he's an accomplished character actor and well, very well known. And he is playing a role that physically he really suits because he, he has a very strong resemblance to Neville Chamberlain. But I think when it comes to his voice, not quite as much. He doesn't really have that soft-spoken no. um, Midlands sort of... I, wait, he's a bit, a bit too gruff, I think. What do you think? He's too Jeremy Irons, because he always sounds like Jeremy Irons, doesn't he? Like, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think he's ever done an accent. That's kind of what I was thinking as well. And it's a very recognisable voice, isn't it? Then next we have George McKay, who 
probably is best known to those that enjoy the, the war movie genre as um, uh, Private Schofield, or Lance Corporal Schofield, I think it was, from 1917. Uh, and before that, he'd been in Private Peaceful, another World War I movie. He's the, uh, the British diplomat. I think he's supposed to be one of uh, Chamberlain's private secretaries. He's tasked with a, a side mission, which we'll get more into in a moment. Um, I do have a comment on Mr. McKay. I just have to comment and say that I love the fact that his very first words in the movie, while drunk, laying on some grass, are, I need to sleep. This is the very <laughs> first line in the movie. And I just, it's just, I was sitting in my, in my house watching this movie. It was pretty late for me. I started at about 11 p.m. And just starting off with that as his first line just made me laugh out loud for, for a good few minutes. Well, it's it's not it's not um, let's let's say it isn't an omen for the film, but it it, it is interesting. It does well. <laughs> yeah, um, his um, his opposite number in Germany is uh, Paul van Hartman, who is played by Janis Nuvona, and he's been in lots of German TV and films, all sorts of different things, lots of comedies, dramas, etc. Um, and I think he plays this really rather well. Then we have uh, an assorted. Uh, cast of diplomats and secretaries, typists. Most notably, we have uh, Ulrich Mathers playing Adolf Hitler, who has been in a number of films, and I, th I think most notably um, Downfall from 2004, where he plays Josef uh, Goebbels. Yeah. And he's been in a couple of others, and he, he's very good, but he's not the spit for Hitler that he is for Goebbels, I would say. And he's got a very striking... Um, face and it, it just doesn't quite match bruno gans's just, performance just works i think it just yeah works yeah. if you if you squint but because he was such a good ringer for goebbels in that in downfall it's really hard to not see it it is it's hard to detach downfall goebbels from munich hitler it's kind of once you've yeah. seen downfall depictions of you know the nazi hierarchy are really hard to sort of top because downfall was so good Downfall is such an interesting film in the way that everyone is characterised. And that performance by, um, by Gans, Bruno Gans, is, is probably one of the best depictions of Hitler towards the end that you can imagine. I mean, the, Anthony Hopkins' performance in The Bunkers is pretty good. I do find it interesting that what you mentioned about the face and the look is confusing if you watch Downfall, especially if you watched yeah. it recently. But I, I do think that like his performance, other than that, I think that you mentioned downfall a lot. And I think that in some ways, like the public perception of downfall and specifically like its most famous scene, you know, in the bunker with the yelling that became like an oh, internet meme. meme. Yeah. 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 I think it's kind of in some ways like poisoned the depiction of Hitler because this is much earlier than that, right? That is after mm. six years of war, whereas this is a, a very different Hitler that, that we see and that, you know, people saw in 1938, you know, some of the traits were still there, but it's, you know, he's not a wild eyed bordering on like crazy person, basically, uh, that he is that you see in downfall for, for a significant portion of it. Absolutely. I think the main issue with, with my opinion on, on, on casting Mathis is that he doesn't have the youthfulness of a, of a much younger Hitler, one that yeah. hasn't been you know, under that stress of directing a mm. war for six years. So I, I think he just looks a little bit too old. But I mean, the performance is good, which we'll come back to. Um, other characters. We have uh, Sandra Huller as uh, Helen Winter, who I believe has a much larger role in the books than she does in the film. 
uh, we have uh, Liv Lisa Fries, who plays Lena, who is a, uh, a Jewish lady, a friend of both of the main characters. Um, her role is, is sadly quite uh, compartmentalized to just being context, really. But there we are. Then we have uh, yeah. August Deal, who plays Franz Sauer. And he's probably best known to, to many as um, Major Hellstrom from uh, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, he was also in uh, Terence Malick's Hidden Life, uh, a film about um, a Catholic uh, German uh, who refuses to uh, swear allegiance to Hitler, which is a, a very strong film. Um, and most recently, he was Vladimir um, Lenin in The King's Men, which comes out, oh, really? which came out earlier this year. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know. Um, we have uh, Jessica Brown Finlay, who uh, is probably best known from uh, The Crown. She plays uh, McKay's uh, wife, Pamela Leggett. Uh, and then we have a, a rounding out of uh, Chamberlain's staff. And we have Alex Jennings as uh, Sir Horace Wilson, who played a uh, the Colonel in the 2004 version of The Four Feathers. Uh, and, and is also in the upcoming Operation Mincemeat film as well. So... Not sure which role he's playing in that, but I believe he is in it. Um, then we have Nicholas Farrell, uh, who played Sir Alex Cardigan. Uh, and he played Hugh Dowding in um, in Hurricane uh, in 2018. He was in SSGB. Um, he was in the 2014 BBC uh, series about the lead up to World War One in 2014, 37 Days, um, where he played um, Ira Crow. Was he not Ed in Toast as well? Because <laughs> that's what I know him from. <laughs> All um, these serious roles. I'm just here like, he's from that sitcom. He was also the RAF squadron leader in Pearl Harbor as well. No way. Oh, yeah, he, he shouldn't was. have been, because that shouldn't have been in, in Pearl Harbor, but it was anyway. Um, and then he was also in Breed of Heroes, which we've mentioned uh, on a, a show and tell episode. Yeah. And then we had Mark Lewis Jones as Sir Osmond uh, Cleverly, and he was been in lots of British TV, Soldier Soldier, Red Cap, uh, that Thirty Seven Days um, series as well, the mini series I mentioned, and uh, and he was in Master and Commander in two thousand and three. So there's some there's some pedigree of of British actors here that have been in some interesting war movies in the past, but it's a strong cast, and as I said, it's a nice balance between that German pool of actors and and the UK. They haven't loaded it with. You know, I know Jeremy Irons is a well-known actor, but they haven't loaded it with names. You know, the performances shine through. You're not just, you know, you're not looking at, like, say, a Tom Hardy or a, a Robert Downey Jr. and just thinking, well, that's Robert Downey Jr. in a uniform. You, you sort of, you can lose yourself in the characterization. which I think, I think I kind of helped this movie a little bit. Some of them I certainly would have liked to have seen more of, to be honest. I think that's that's one thing that we'll come back to when we discuss the the agreement scenes and, and the actual yeah. negotiations, etc. 100%. I'll go into production a little bit now. Though. So it was a Netflix film, came out or days before we recorded this show. So depending on when you're listening to We're it, hot on it'll it. be out there, hot on the heels, yeah. Uh, and it was uh, co-created uh, co by Turbine Studios. Obviously, as Matt mentioned, based on the book by Robert Harris. Um, he wrote Fatherland and most recently he wrote a book called V2. Um, and the screenplay was written by Ben Power and Robert Harris also had a uh, writing credit. Um, working title was Munich 38, but was changed to the edge of war. And it was directed by a German director called Christian Schwachau, known for his work on German TV and films, um, a 
miniseries called The Tower, which is about life in GDR era Dresden. And most oh. recently, he yeah he directed a, a couple of episodes of The Crown. And cinematography is by Frank Lahm. Uh, he's another German uh, uh, crew member. There's a lot of German obviously uh, involvement in this movie. And he's worked with um, Swachow on Bad Banks as a Netflix series. And he's worked heavily on German TV. And he also did the cinematography on the um, Crown episodes that Christian did. So there's a lot of collaboration. Hmm. Yeah. And there's a a British uh, connection for the music. So it was by Isabel Waller-Bridger, who is uh, Phoebe's sister. um, And she's worked on... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, And she's worked on uh, BBC's War and Peace in 2016, episodes of Black Mirror and Vanity Fair for ITV. So she's, you know, got a good pedigree for for doing quite, you know, drama-y, musical composing. Um, And it was filmed in location in Munich and Potsdam and in Liverpool. It was. I was like... Yeah. I was doing doing the Leo pointing at the TV screen meme quite a number of times. Every week, it's becoming a becoming a thing. <laughs> so, as this week, obviously, retro reviews. I mean, we're hot on the heels of the movie, so there are no genuine retro reviews. So, we thought we'd try something a little bit different. So, if you're active on our Twitter, do follow us um, at Fighting on Film, and we put a post up asking for one word reviews. So, mm. here are some that I picked out. Brian Moran said "meh." Benji Lee had two words, but I couldn't leave it out. He said "skinny Hitler." Um, Thomas McCall said compelling. Uh, David Patterson said too long, uh, but he wrote it as one word. Uh, John uh, Evans said, very good, very good. Yeah, smooth. This one's even smoother. Uh, John Evans said a pleasement. <laughs> oh, I liked. Yeah, that was juicy. And Dave Coe said decent. So it's quite a mixed bag, I think, really. I think a lot of people, you know, either found it either too long or enjoyed it. I think that's the thing. I. I don't know what everyone went into the film expecting. Um, I was hoping for, I knew it was going to be fictionalized from, from an adaptation. So I, I wasn't expecting like a, a blow by blow recreation of the negotiations in Munich, etc. But I was hoping for a little bit more of that meat. I don't know about you, Wesley. Absolutely. I think, um, I also had no expectations. I haven't read the book uh, or anything like that. No, I'd, no, I'd, I haven't either. I'd seen the trailers, but I'd watched the trailers before I watched the movie. I was hoping that, I guess we'll get into this a little bit more in the plot, but I was kind of hoping that the fictional and fact storylines that are happening throughout this thing were a bit more intertwined instead mm. of like almost happening totally apart from each other, except for one very specific moment. Beyond that, I didn't have many quality expectations. Like, actually, it's probably better than I was planning it being. But oh, Yeah, I hadn't read the book either. So from the trailer, it, it, it was definitely, I mean, trailers are guilty for this anyway, but it made it look a bit more punchy than, than necessarily what we got. You know, we had, you got the shot of George That's McKay, because it's George McKay, you have to have a shot of him running, like because he did it in 1917, so he has to do it in every other film he's he in. He runs so well, though. That's he, the thing. He's such a great runner. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's like... He's a cinematic runner. Cinematic runner, yeah. So you had that <laughs> interspersed with, like, Chamberlain and Hitler, and I was like, oh, has he got to deliver this document? Like, he's running, trying to, you know, sort things out, but it, it didn't pan out like that, and I was just a little bit like, oh, yeah, you know, I wanted more edge of my seat. You know, will they avert the war or not because it's fiction they can go whatever way they want to go 
and in the end you get a pretty by numbers sort of espionage politically thriller hybrid i'd be really curious to know obviously all three of us come into this with uh, i would say a far above average knowledge about what actually happens in history around this agreement and what happens afterwards uh i'd be curious to know uh, v- uh viewers who who have essentially no knowledge of history or certainly like don't know how the story is going to go what they would think of it like i wonder how much of the like tension is robbed from the fact that we kind of know the beats of the story assuming that they, it doesn't go totally fictional absolutely yeah interesting that my mum she messaged me after she'd seen it um she messaged me in the in the evening and she was like oh that that boy should have shot him that boy <laughs> should, spo- spoiler alert there's a character who one of von hartman is in the a room with hitler and he's got this little fabrique national pistol look at rob throwing out his knowledge I know, yeah, exactly. I watch the armorsbench.com. So is he, you know, is he going to shoot Hitler or not? And 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 sort of it pans out that he doesn't. And me and my mum got into this discussion of would it have been better better for Europe if he had done that? And I was saying, well, you know, who's to say someone didn't take Hitler's place and committed worse atrocities? Or, you know, who's to say? And I thought that was quite interesting. So the movie throws up interesting what ifs. The plot is using dramatic license anyway. Could we not have had a bang, shoots Hitler? Oh my God, that had been a real twist. As we don't, I was like, well, I know he doesn't shoot him. So this scene is a little bit irrelevant. Yeah. Almost. Well, that, that's that's very true. And I, there was a moment where I thought that it, having not read the book, I thought, are they going to go full Inglorious Bastards with this and do an alt history um, sort of moment where he does shoot Hitler? Um, and then when that didn't occur, my expectation of the tension then shifted knowing that there was another at least 25 minutes of the film left was is he going to get away with this is he going to escape because we have that whole setup with august deal's uh character where he he kind of realizes that he's up to no good with mckay uh leggett mm. um and i was wondering is is he gonna to have to escape is he under suspicion now yeah. is there going to be more of this but there wasn't that that just sort of ebbed away there was a conversation yeah, with Frau Winter about, are you going to continue to be uh, an opposition to, to the Nazis? And he just says, yes, I have nothing else to do. Um, I did think yeah. that the whole scene where he doesn't shoot Hitler, um, this is a spoiler review, by the way, guys, if you, you probably yeah, realise that by now, yeah. <laughs> um, is um, I thought it was such an interesting human moment where someone was incapable of carrying out what they had hoped to do because Mm. He was faced with the reality of having to shoot a man face to face. He knows what this man is capable of, but he doesn't know about the Holocaust. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know about the war that is going to engulf Europe. So he's weighing up. This man is very unpleasant and he has designs on starting a major war in Europe. But can I justify shooting him? And he has that doubt. Maybe it's a lack of capability within, I guess. It's that kind of situation. You wouldn't know what you would do unless you were in that situation. And that that was something I did like, and that made me think, like, if I was in that position, would I shoot Hitler? Knowing what I, knowing what he knew, that character? Really like that scene, if only because I feel like Paul is the strongest character in the movie. Mm. And so um, I really like that he had that scene and that... Other than Irons, he, he's the character with the most conviction, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in that scene, like, it doesn't, like... It's just him in the room, I... 
he says some lines, but they're not about what he's doing while Hitler is talking to him. And, and you can mm. tell what's going through his mind. You can feel what, why he's not doing it, why he wants to do it. And kind of in that moment, I thought they did a pretty good job. Yeah, I agree. I, one of the strongest scenes in the film. Mm-hmm. I think his arc as well is the most interesting arc because he's mm. he's lost the most out of all of, of the like friendship group. You know, obviously mm-hmm. the you know spoiler again the, the the girl you know she's found out to be Jewish. Well, yeah. She's horribly mistreated in in prison. She's thrown from a a window and she's in this sort of coma type. Yeah, like catatonic, isn't she? Catatonic state. Yeah, um, and he's saying how like you know. I thought the Nazis were going to improve my country. Look at what they've done or look at what they're going to do. And his, you know, his arc is actually, he's lost so much. He's not only lost his friends, but he's also lost something that he believed in. Like, and he put all his eggs in one basket. So for him to have that opportunity to confront the man that saw as some sort of like God type character, some redeemer, some great redeemer to have that opportunity is really interesting, but we know that doesn't happen. So it's like, Oh, I'm conflicted. I thought by contrast that McKay's character had very little in the game. Um, yes. He, he has he has the least uh, conviction behind him. He doesn't seem particularly bothered about what Hitler represents or what is going to happen in Europe. He's just swept along as a functionary, I think would be fair to say. And that might, you know, that might be a fairly accurate representation of some of those staff members in 37, 38, where they're just... They're just working through the cogs of politics. I think it suits the character because also when he's when he's trying. I mean, we're, we're going more broad now, but when he's trying to sort of persuade Chamberlain to let him in the room and stuff, it's very sort of all oh, you know. You, you re, you know, can, can can I introduce you to this man? He's really important. He's going to show you this document. And Chamberlain's like, well, okay, like you know, it's obviously it's the dynamic there between you know boss and subordinate. I think quite work quite mm. well. As little as McKay had to do, really, I think he nailed the sort of nervous desk man. I think yeah, was, yeah. that's what I felt. Very, like he's yeah, been very fair. Thrust into this espionage spiral that he's not up to it. It's like it's clearly not up to it. But I think that's probably what they were going for. So I think maybe we should just delve into the actual what the plot is. It is centres around the Munich Agreement, where you know, like Neville Chamberlain and. The British government and the, the French government, the Italians, are all trying to hash out this agreement to sort out the uh, Rhine, uh, Sudetenland. Sorry, and it's all up in the air. What's going to happen? And there's this document that Van Hartmann comes into possession of, which is is it the Kurt K screen? It's the Hossback memo. It's it's the minutes from a meeting on November fifth, nineteen thirty seven, where mm. Hitler kind of outlines to the military leaders his general future plans for for future conquest right yeah so this is a really really important document it blow the whole you know the whole diplomacy element of it out of the water is going to change it would change everything and mckay is called upon by mi5 to travel with chamberlain to the to the meeting and show chamberlain the the document and potentially change the course of history And and that's the that's the meat of the plot, really. There's no, there's nothing else really going on apart from this. Will McKay get the document to Chamberlain? In the end, he does, and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's it's a bit of a what dense, I thought. Bit of a shame. What I thought was unusual was that Chamberlain hadn't been briefed to expect to see any any documents or anything like that, and no one within his staff had been briefed on this. 
Um, yeah. So Chamberlain was being shown this document on the grounds of it being it's important. And the only person to explain it to him was a relatively junior official. Um, mm. None of his, none of his uh, group of advisors and ministers that traveled with him to Munich were the ones saying, we have intelligence from a German uh, diplomat who opposes Hitler and wants to present this to you. It may help us in the negotiations. That's what I was expecting because I knew the basics plot that you know there was these two friends that were diplomats and they had to get an important document to to eat to one another and and that would help shape the situation but that doesn't happen that would have made it more of like a sort of a thrillery type where you know if Neville if Chamberlain had like an outline of what this document could contain and he's got to try and stall the you know stall the talks to buy yeah. UK more time to go and get the document and bring it back and he's being chased by the guy that that SS officer that was von Hartmann's mate I thought that was what we were going to get but in the end we get this sort of three minute meeting where naval chamberlain oh, goes no, we're doing that thing where, being where, we, where we write better films yeah exactly yeah we always do <laughs> I, I also like you would expect that that somebody would be like hey hey neville uh at some point yeah. hugh may say something you should listen to hugh he may have information you need. Yeah, even if it was yeah. just as subtle as that, that would have yes. helped you, wouldn't yes. it? It really would have. Why wouldn't MI5 just go, yo, Nev, there's this document in Germany. We're going to send a chap to go get it. Can you stall Hitler for five minutes? <laughs> and then they send they send a young typist yeah. as his backup and don't tell him that she's going <laughs> to... Exactly, like, yeah. It, that was a very odd turn of events. Like, once she was introduced... Uh, this is uh, Angie Mahindra, who plays Joan. She's a, a member of the, I think it's um, Downing Street typing pool. Mm-hmm. She's taken along as a secretary to type up notes and the agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And that all seems fairly normal. And it, it kind of evolves that she's keeping an eye on Leggett. And there's a scene in the film where Leggett has gotten documents. Great. Um, he's preparing to, to show Hitler. Uh, sorry. He's preparing to show Chamberlain. <laughs> Don't um, show Hitler, cry. <laughs> yeah, that would that would be that would have been a very different film. Um, but, well, Mr. Adolf, I think I've, you dropped something. <laughs> Indiana Jones just pops up with a diary, and he's like, "There's this document in this book. Do you want to sign this one?" Anyway, um, so he's shown Chamberlain, and then he's preparing to 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 get it out of the country, back to Britain, to hopefully show it to someone who can be influential and and help it change British um, the approach to, to to Germany and it's missing and he has a, a little confronta- confrontation with the the SS officer or the uh, the Leipzig data um, member who's uh, in charge of Hitler's general security I think he, he explains um, and later at the very end of the film we find out that she took it not the German officer um, so they do have that document and yeah. I I just didn't know where that was going or why that was done. Oh, no, it's like, hang on, man. I thought the book, I thought the adaptation of the book was going to round it out so that none of that subplot actually had any impact at all. So the meeting didn't have any impact and the the actual, what is hinted to be the horseback memo um, Mm. doesn't play any role at all either because it it was lost in Munich and it never got back to Britain. But then it's revealed that he has the memo still and that they can take it back to London and hopefully show it to people and have an impact. But why, why was that something that needed to pay off like that? I just couldn't, 
didn't see how that added to the to the narrative mm. of, of the film it yeah. seemed odd like in, in the it's basically the entire reason that the typist character exists mm. <laughs> and so it, it's weird like it, because it's not just like a, a one-time thing that happens at the end like it requires like multiple scenes of setup for this character yeah. who exists just to take an envelope off screen and to deliver it to our main character in a car yeah pretty yeah. much that's it and that's what confused me i, I was just thinking is, is there supposed to be more to that character but with a, like a runtime as long missing. as this i don't think mm -hmm. they caught anything from that that yeah, that's going to be added later I, like i wonder if in the book like does that character play a larger role of some of some kind in the book where you get a bit more space probably i'll talk about this later with the runtime but there is room to fit her in and give her way more to do there's you know there's whole conference rooms full of room for this movie to do more and it 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 just at the at the start it's, you know i think i'll say it now it takes 40 minutes to get to our actual plot and by that time i know, I know a couple of people who actually fell asleep um because nothing was happening ironically um you know thinking what mckay says at the start but <laughs> it's it's like i don't know i don't i just don't enjoy movies that do that go well Here's what you think the plot is. It's going to be about Neville Chamberlain going to Munich and doing these, you know, you're going to get like a, a political thriller. Europe's greatest what if, you know. Exactly. That's what I thought we'd be getting. And then and it goes, um, hello, uh, look, this man's from MI5. He's got something that we'd like you to do for us. And it's like, uh, what? Now it's a spy film. Like it was sort of a bit, like I'd rather have that at the start. Could we not have set up Michaels like this normal desk jockey bloke? He works with Neville Chamberlain. And 10 minutes in, you're a spy now. Wow. Okay, that's cool. But because it, it took so long to get into it, I was just sort of floundering at this point. And I was like, okay, okay, he's got to go and get this document now. Hmm. We have to spend a lot of time learning about how Hugh has a really poor work-life balance and yeah. it's affecting his personal life. Yeah. It's very true. Very it true. And yeah. All of the scenes with his wife uh, and his family, just I don't really think they really add anything. We could get really? an idea of his character from this is like the most busy time the foreign office yeah. and and downing street westminster must have been having because everyone else that period like, everyone else looks like they're really flustered like the, the guy he works with but he's not he's just having lunch at the ritz or wherever it was and it'd I'm be like, completely forgiven like... for him not to have scenes with family members and that would yeah free up space for other stories he could have been talking to colleagues with yeah. a bit more set to the typist exactly yeah or, exactly or set him up to be a bit like sort of overly flustered you know he's saying like oh all my all my job is is taking the documents from room to room and make his job that he does reinvigorate him to think it's interesting you know mm. or you say he could have said oh i'm just a, i'm just a paper pusher later on the the, the the mi5 goes well you can you can push papers for the for the government for queen and country now you know you could have something like that you know just set the guy up to be a little bit more than this sort of i don't know just this, this sort of nobody character but maybe that's what you know the character in the, the book is, is is meant to be but it i just wanted more from his character because you're wasting george mckay that's the only issue for me i think mm. the problem is is that we spend all this time learning about the poor work-life balance, the family problems, et cetera, et cetera, for, for Hugh. And then we end the movie with him obviously wanting to reconnect in a more meaningful way with his wife based on what he's experienced in Munich. But mm -hmm. the decision he makes is that 
oh, I should join the military because that fixes, you know, work-life balance problems very quickly and, and is known for helping people connect with their spouses. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think his wife's reaction to that was probably everyone's reaction to that, where she was just dumbfounded. She didn't have a lot to say on that, did she? <laughs> I'll join she the was RAF. Just kind of like, All right, what? All right, fine. Start, it was okay. just a bit odd, you know. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, him ordering half a bottle of Chablis was the end end of that for, for the hair, wasn't it? She was just, no, that's the last straw. She'll love rationing in about a year, yeah. you know. <laughs> Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. When we know that these political thrillers from the period, like, uh, darkest hour can really work and really work well yeah. to impart the the gravitas and the severity and the importance of all those historic moments which don't necessarily involve explosions and gunfire and actual battles and fighting it's yeah. what was happening on the political scene it can be done really well and i was hoping for a, perhaps just a little bit more of that yeah. in the actual munich i thought we were going to get something like the gathering storm where you saw chamber like i know that's i know it isn't what the book is about but on some level it the book is about the munich agreement surely so we could have just had a bit i, I just i felt myself wanting to see more of jeremy irons being neville chamberlain because i was mm. absolutely like astounded at how much he looked like him i could forgive the voice it's fine you know i think he got the sort of nuances of, of his movement and he did he was playing him like an older man it, it did it was really nice um especially the scenes where he leaves and they've recreated those scenes of him leaving for the, for the talks for Batum. Really nice. Really yeah, appreciate yeah, the that. scenes, the scenes by the aircraft. Yeah. Cause I, I went back and compared the, the scenes like with the original newsreel and it's, it's pretty bang on. Very good. Um, it's very know, good. Even down to people cheering him and stuff like that. Really nice. Um, Cause I think as well, like I know I'm, 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 I was going to ask everybody this. I wonder what your, I don't know what your views on Chamberlain are everyone, but it seemed pretty revisionist, you know. I know he in the last few years, Chamberlain's got a lot of flack for walking us into a world war, you know, for being a sort of king of appeasement, shall we say? But I think the movie sort of portrayed him in a more like a fairer way. It didn't. It didn't portray him as like this sort of bumbling fool from the Victorian age that he's sort of presented as now. What do you think, Wesley? Do you want to go first? How long do you have? How long do you have? Okay. <laughs> oh God, I've opened. I've so opened this, the this is this is like so a lot of in in my kind of social circle online. This is a lot of what is being discussed around this movie is its mm -hmm. portrayal of Chamberlain. I think the the typical typical portrayal of Chamberlain during this period is one of an extreme bordering on bumbling sort of optimist where he doesn't fully understand that what he's doing is going to have negative consequences and he doesn't understand that what he's like the piece he's trying to make is not possible um i think the film does a better job of whether or not you agree with it as truth or not it does a good job of showing chamberlain as a or it makes, a, it makes it very clear that what they're trying to show is that Chamberlain is a, per, is a politician put in a bad situation and he's trying to make the best of it, right? Where he doesn't believe that Britain is ready for war, so he's trying to push it off into the future. He, um, you know, is trying to get Hitler to sign that peace note on the day after the conference because he hopes that it will have, like it will build sort of political capital against Germany mm. in the future. 
now none of this ends up happening, but um, I think that's what they're trying to portray. You know, my view of Chamberlain is maybe slightly more negative than that, although not as negative as some people. I think some people like you will get reactions or online or you will hear information online about like, well, the Munich agreement caused the second world war to happen because of, of X, Y, Z, which I think is, is far too negative about the appeasement yeah, effort yeah. in general. Um, but I think that the film probably is a far like swerve away from typical sort of popular histories of this time period that view appeasement incredibly negatively where here it's mm. kind of a, in a spot where they, it's a, like it's a, a necessary means to buying evil. time. Is yeah. what they're trying to suggest with the film, isn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely. Which is one of the revisionist uh, points of view. And the mm-hmm. thing with with Chamberlain's legacy is that as soon as he was forced to step down in 1940, that legacy has been shaped and reshaped and reshaped by not only his political rivals at the time, but also people that followed him. And then the revisionist movement came in in the late 60s, I think. And we've seen it turn on its head again. To it was appeasement. It it was. It was a bad idea. It should never have been attempted to perhaps a, a more with representing with Harris's is, is, is fiction and this film. It's presenting a more um, revisionist once again mm. aspect. And I, I was quite surprised. I, I didn't think the film was as revisionist as it was going to be um, until we have that nice little scene at the end where they're on board the aircraft Um which was a Lockheed 14 Super Electra, by the way. That's the alley tally for this week, guys. Um, <laughs> lovely, lovely. <laughs> um, and the the end notes at the end of the film, where it says the Munich Agreement bought time for Britain to rearm, and that was the most stark present. Yeah, that was the most stark presentation of this revisionist idea that what Chamberlain was doing was I'm buying time for Britain to rearm to defend itself. Mm not necessarily to defeat Germany because that would have taken a lot more money and a lot more time. Cause no one ever directly says in the movie, do they, that we need to stop Hitler because we need, we don't have an army capable of fighting him off yet. You know, no, no. one's that blunt, which was good. You know, I was, I was glad they didn't go there. Yeah. I, I was surprised they didn't. I, I had an almost semi expectation that it would be much more overtly revisionist than it was. Mm. Um, but it was more a, a, a presentation of, of Chamberlain as being, whether this is true of his actual character, of, of because people's appraisals even now of his character span such a vast array yep. from like being, All he was appallingly place. self-centered to <laughs> yeah. he was the you know the time-honored statesman. He's like Marmite, isn't he? He's political Marmite. You love him or you hate. Yeah, yeah he's political Marmite for the for the late twentieth century, mid twentieth century. But the thing is, I was I was really interested that that scene in the garden he has with Leggett and his wife where he explains his motivations for wanting to to make a, a peace with Hitler in that he he didn't fight in the First World War and he saw people go off to fight this horrible war. Yeah. And he, he's vowed to himself forever that this would be, he would work as hard as he possibly could to avoid anything like that from ever happening again. So whether that was a true representation, I don't know. But Yeah, great dialogue though. I, I, I really like that speech. Whether he said it or not, probably didn't, but... Like mm-hmm. it, it was really, it was a good, it was really, it, it set him up as an appeaser. And and I, I could side with that view. I, I think anyone could side with that view. Would you rather strive hard to, you know, appease a tyrant and not have a war than have a war 
that you know is going to be worse than the First World War, just because of all the technological advances and whatever. I don't know if Chamberlain was even aware of any of that, but it, at least they, it was nice to sort of try and explain appeasement in a nutshell really quickly to people. Well, we have this view of appeasement with 100% 2020 hindsight, don't we? Yeah, of course. So we, we know yeah. that it didn't work, and we know yeah. that the the horrible war that they hope to avoid happened anyway. Yeah. So this is something I was going to come on to a little bit later as well, which was when watching this film, we have this benefit of hindsight, and we can we can we can watch. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Watch this and know what's going to happen. Everyone in that moment in the film and in reality didn't have that benefit. So you can understand the political desire to appease. Um, but I, I just I just thought it was really interesting that they added that layer of uh, of him wanting to avoid this war because he saw so many go off to fight the last one. Yeah, I think um, one of the challenges this movie has, and I don't think it like sticks the landing on solving this problem, is that it has a fictional plot with a bunch of characters we have to get to know. We have to have mm. they have to have arcs, they have to have stories, and then it has a. semi-factual I'll say you know uh, I won't go straight to say it's 100% factual uh, along the historic path but it is like mostly on rails and it feels like there's not enough it doesn't spend enough time discussing those events right it doesn't talk about some some pieces that that I think would really help if the story is around like Neville Chamberlain and and appeasement, like if you want to tell that story, then maybe you do have a scene at the beginning with the British military where they talk about the relative preparedness between the two militaries in 1938. Maybe you have something about the fact that by the time they go to Munich, um, Chamberlain has already met personally with Hitler twice and had these same conversations and had a back and forth. And and there's, there's nothing about any of that. And I think that that kind of does... I think it it still There's works. that little with, scene where they're walking mm-hmm. up the steps into the conference building and they exchange a glance mm-hmm. to one another. And it almost feels like that's the first time that they've ever met, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. Isn't, isn't the case at all. It's true, mm-hmm. yeah. It, it It's like the movie dangles these little carrots out in front of you as if it's like, for people that know, as if to go, oh, look, you know what mm-hmm. happens here. Look at this shiny bit of history, lovely. Oh, now back to our espionage plot. You're like, but hang mm-hmm. on, I want to, I want to see irons and 
and and and Hitler and and Mussolini. I want to see Chamberlain and all them lot actually do something because it would only add to the tension if we saw what the actual guys were going through trying to hash out. Oh God, Mussolini didn't even appear. Yeah, he looked good though. The guy who played him. You literally see the back of his head, and that's it, don't you? I know. Is he in the car with Hitler? He is. That's it. You see the back of his head or the side of his head. He He, he doesn't say anything. There's no impact really. He's spoken about in third person. That's it. Weird, yeah. And yeah, with the French. Yeah, exactly. Because at the start, when you see um, Chamberlain's in his um, in the, his office, and he's got the chief of staff there, the, the navy, the air force, and the army. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, um, Wesley. It's like you've missed that meeting of you know how many tanks we got, how many ships have we got ready to sail. It's sort of I kind of wish we'd seen that a little bit. So at least we, as the audience. Because obviously we've got to remember, not everyone, as we've said, not everyone watching this movie is going to know 100% of the facts. And, and and because the movie doesn't even say at any point that it is a, a fiction, annoyed me until right until the end. Because um, if most, if, if like most people, you turn it off the minute it stops, then you think that movie's true. And this is, I always say every week, and I'll say it again until the listeners hate it. These movies have to tell you this because it's really important because now people are going to leave the cinema or leave their, you know, their TVs at home thinking, one, there was a man in a room that could have shot Hitler and and two, that no one was preparing to fight Hitler either. So it's like, it just feels like there's scenes in the movie that we could have just had added on to just show the historical context a little bit to then show McKay and the made up story to show how the impact that could have had or could have on proceedings. I think that's my overarching feeling. One other piece I'd like to add there is that, now I may be mistaken, maybe I missed it, but I don't think there's ever a conversation that gives the geography of the area that they are like talking about at Munich. Like, and I feel like that's another thing because a a critical part of what Chamberlain says along the way and why he's justifying what he's doing is around public sentiment around not wanting Mm. to, I don't remember the exact words, but basically not wanting to fight about some small bit of territory in Eastern Europe, which is territory that we've never established what it is or where it is. He said something like, oh, the the British public don't care about some border conflict. I'm like, yes, okay. You mean the Sudetenland, that a big bit of, you know, a big piece of land. It's not a, you know, it, it, it's just a little bit, so it's not enough. Like, you, you owe it to the history to say mm-hmm. it. it's not going to harm Well, they could have just panned over a map of Europe, couldn't they, during that, yeah. that, as those joint chiefs are leaving, you know, the imperial staff is leaving, they could have just panned across a map showing the state land and where they expect the Germans to be, etc. But they don't <laughs> get that. And the only mention of the Czechs we get at, at the, the actual conferences, oh, the Czechs aren't here, of course. That was a big thing. That was a big crux. <laughs> Sorry, it could have done what Forgotten Battle did and had a map at the start. Like mm-hmm. it's so simple, it's so cliche, but it would have helped. I'm a. I'm reminded like this is so. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Just just out there in movie going, watching land out there for everybody listening. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan. Classic. There's a specific scene in Lord of the Rings where it is literally just a guy pointing at a map where they talk about things happening on the map, and that's what this this movie needs. It's like it needs a map that somebody's voicing over or pointing at or something uh, but yeah. i circling back not, not to extend that one too too much longer the check stuff so small small little complaint here around the checks like they're mentioned several times like hey why aren't they here well they're not here blah 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 
but fun fact, there were actually there were actually two Czechoslovakian representatives in Munich at the time, and the British and French would actually deliver the agreement to them sort of before it was signed so that they could communicate it back to Prague, you know, their government. Mm. Um, so mm. I don't know, that's small, but it, it I know it's nice it. to see that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, they get sort of written out their own history a little mm-hmm. bit, which is a bit upsetting. <laughs> which, is, um, which is a problem with yeah. history of the Munich Agreement. As a person who read a lot of books by British authors about this agreement, it's amazing how little is said about Czechoslovakia, is all I will say. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. So, um, obviously, it's, we were we were delving into the historical context there a little bit, but as we have you with us, Wesley, um, you know, you've done your nine-part uh, series on the Munich Agreements. If you haven't listened to that, uh, listeners, please go away and find it. You know, Wesley's podcast is fantastic. You know, it's just Wesley telling you the facts is fantastic. So, linking it back to this movie, Wesley, um, so what does the movie actually get right um, for historical context terms. Absolutely. So, so there are a lot of like small things that I really like about the movie. Now, these are all small moments. They're not huge sort of storylines. I'm just going to start, start sort of going through them. So one of the ones is um, one of the ones is around how Hitler hated details in these meetings. So in one of the scenes, the um, the translator Schmidt c- comes back down into kind of the meeting room where all of the non-top-level functionaries are kind of just hanging out waiting for the meetings to end. And he says that they're like hung up in details. And this is like well-documented that Hitler hated details so much and Chamberlain constantly wanted to talk about them. So one of the big stories of the earlier meetings between Chamberlain and Hitler and then also the one at Munich is that Chamberlain constantly wanted to discuss details. Like, you know, uh, how would the government of Czechoslovakia and the citizens of the Sudetenland that wanted to leave be compensated for their property and how how would like movable property be handled like livestock like what are you gonna do with all these cows who gets the cows are the kinds of details that he would bring (laughs) up during these meetings and apparently it just drove hitler crazy so i was i was really glad that that little bit came into the came into the movie i just i've got like visions now like neville with his sort of clipped sort of accent going what what about the cows adolf Please, it's very important to me that you tell me what's going to happen to the livestock. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> That's great. Um, another another really good one was, so uh, one of the critical scenes of the movie is when Hugh gets to accompany uh, Chamberlain to his morning meeting with Hitler after the Munich Agreement is signed. They, they sign like the, you know, lasting peace note. And the reason that Hugh gets to come along is because he claims that Chamberlain needs a translator. And this is really interesting because what actually happened at the first meeting between Chamberlain and Hitler in Munich uh, several weeks prior is that it was only Schmidt, Hitler, and Chamberlain that were in the room. Like those were the only three people. And Chamberlain was never provided any minutes from that from that meeting, so he had to write all of it down from memory later. And, and I think the, the line in in the in the movie is that like we can't trust Smith to, to translate or or to sort of you know keep a good record of what's happening. Okay, now now those were incredibly nitpicky. Uh, one other small little nitpick is when. Um, 
Hugh delivers the note to Chamberlain in the House of Commons when he's making a speech. Uh, in real history, they don't actually interrupt Chamberlain. Um, the, the person sitting behind him actually waits for a break and there's some applause and then he hands him the note and then he says stuff. Right. That is like tiny, tiny details. Um, but but one more- you got to have George McKay running. It's in his contract. Exactly. Exactly. It has like to be. it's yeah. And you know that's one of those like movie changes that is totally obvious on why they did it. Like you don't have the all important note sitting in the in the background yeah. for a minute while he gives a speech uh, before it's passed over. Okay, and then hmm, another one that I thought was interesting and it really stood out to me specifically because of what I've been thinking a lot about recently with the podcast is. I would almost, I would bet a lot of money that the person who wrote the book read Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by Schreier. Um, it's obviously a very well-known source, very sort of, I, I would call it pivotal source in sort of the, the rise of, of the Nazis in 1930s Germany. However, what, tr what triggered this in me was during the scene where the three friends are meeting in Munich in 1932, kind of the pivotal scene where Hugh and Paul kind of have their falling out because Paul has really bought into the Naziness and Lena very much has not. She, she's very much mm. resisting that. And Hugh also, as a good British boy, is not a fan of that fanaticism. They, they, they use the word fanatic a lot in that scene. Yeah. But one of the specific lines that, that Lena says is that she talks about the Nazis violence and it also calls them perverts which I think is a really weird word to use in that scene because they're talking about violence like the entire scene is about how they're violent and they're hurting people and they're you know taking over by force and mm. but the word pervert is actually from Schreier Schreier uses it a lot to describe the homosexuality present in the SA at this point in time he's okay Schreier is quite the, the homophobe, which was, okay. you know, quite right, widespread at the time in some countries. And so he uses the word pervert often to describe them. And I found it really interesting that that made it into the script at a time that you would never use that word. It, it's mm. not something that anybody is discussing in that scene, but they still threw it in there, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. I, and it, when she said it, it's sort of like, okay, perfect. Yeah, okay, okay, I can, I can stretch that. I can, I can buy that. But now you've said yeah, it. Yeah, I suppose yeah. I just, I, I assumed she was speaking perhaps about the perversion of power or that, that sort of thing. And oh, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Mm. It, it, it's yeah. possible. It's possible that I'm reading that totally wrong. It just, no, but that's um, interesting. But, it, yeah. it, it's always interesting to understand the historiography behind where people are, are basing their appraisal of the situation that they're going to put forth that was good i like that that's some super sleuthing i love it <laughs> um and then i also liked i think i mentioned earlier that like paul is my favorite character in this movie i like his mm. his arc his character development yeah. and i think it's interesting as a kind of a a single person study of some of the evolution of thought on, on Hitler politically during this period. So if you look at 1932, before Hitler takes power and how people view all of the radical stuff that Hitler is saying about his future plans, a lot of people write it off. They're just like, oh yeah, like, yeah, he's saying those things. He's super anti-Semitic. But once he becomes sort of a, a, a government leader, once he comes into power, that will mellow out. And, you know, mm. he, he won't be 
interact. He won't be putting those policies into place. Those are just to, you know, get his his stormtroopers riled up and get his supporters riled up in these speeches. And so Paul seems to think that as well. Like a lot of what Paul says in 1932 is that he's he wants, you know, Hitler to be in power because he's talking about making making Germany, you know, what it used to be, where it was a real power in Europe and and, and where it was really um, an impactful player in, in global events. And he discounts all of these, you know, violent things that Hitler says he's going to do in the same way that, you know, Nazi politicians or, or German politicians and international political leaders were all discounting the, some of the more radical stuff that he was saying. Yeah, that, that part where they're discussing it after visiting um, Lena in a catatonic state. And mm-hmm. he, he, he talks about, I thought, I thought that we, they, would, they would move away from that when they became you know the government i think you're spot on there i thought that was that scene is a lot of exposition about paul's own turnaround and where he was coming from where he is now and i i agree i think he he's probably the most interesting character that has the most development that you see throughout the film Mm, because he's not as i said earlier he he feels like he's lost so much that his only Mm. emotion is to get revenge on the nazi party whether it be fighting them directly or shooting Hitler, it was, you know, stopping them. It, it, it feels like he will go to the lengths that no one is prepared to go to, to stop war. Um, he, you know, he's like the sort of, he's the anti-appeaser if Neville Chamberlain is the pro, is the pro-appeaser at the end. So it, it like the parallel. Um, but I just wish sort of McKay had had the same drive that he had, because he didn't really have much, he didn't have a hat in the ring, really, you know, your friend, you know, one of your best friends from from your school days has died, and he just seems like a bit apath- a bit bored of it. It's like, oh, okay, oh, that's a shame, you know, like mm. his his upper lip was just a little too stiff. Yeah, yeah, a little <laughs> bit. Think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I would personally, I would have enjoyed this movie better. Uh, this may be getting into final thoughts territory as well. That's if, fine. If Hugh and Paul's positions were reversed in terms of how they were treated by the movie, I think if Paul was treated as more of a main character and a lot of that early movie was spent with Paul instead of with Hugh, I think Mm. it is a a Mm. more interesting movie just because Paul has more interesting things to do and more interesting development throughout the film. Definitely. get a little bit of that where he's meeting with members of the army and other Mm -hmm. other, um, foreign uh, diplomat corps, uh, colleagues and they're they're kind of almost a proto-resistance and they're they're discussing um what they're going to do and how how they'll do it and there's there's that really interesting bit where they're like hitler needs to make this move so we can trigger uh opposition within the army and that's absolutely that's absolutely like historically accurate Mm. so what is happening there is there's a coup that's that would theoretically have been led by Chief of Staff uh, General Halder at this point in time. And so they, they, there were two things that they thought were essential for the coup to succeed. Um, the first was that Hitler declare war to start it off so that they could in some way like charge him with some sort of crime of taking Germany to war. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I'm being very wishy-washy here because of yeah. my thoughts on the likelihood of such a thing succeeding. Um but then also they they needed Hitler to be in Berlin because because of the specific military leaders that were sort of in on the plot. So like they had, you know, the, the commander of the 
sort of Berlin garrison and right, the commander the of, uh, yeah, there was a commander of the Potsdam garrison that, that they also sort of had in on the plot. And then there was a specific division of troops between Munich and Berlin that could act as a blocking force that they needed it. Like the right. last place you want Hitler to launch it. If you're going to launch a coup against Hitler, the very last place in Germany you want him to be is in Munich. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's all a little bit, um, valkyrie isn't it trying to get in the right places and all things like that yeah a little bit yeah, yeah. why why were they held in munich in the first place Paul wesley uh the the talks were held in munich that, that's actually a really good question i'm not sure where the specifics of hey we should do this in munich came from um hmm. i don't think i've ever read anything about somebody like neither have i that's why i was wondering it just came to me just then i was well mm-hmm. well obviously hitler wasn't located in, in munich at that time why why are they meeting in munich i i suppose it's slightly closer geographically it is, it is roughly middle between all the four parties like it's it's sort of in that region of middle um it's a, yeah I, I don't know the answer to that if, if any listeners know at me on twitter with that information please sorry it's maybe because they wanted to go to the beer hall because they wanted the bev <laughs> <laughs> terrible <laughs> and on that note what were, what were your favorite scenes from the film? So kind of thinking about ones that we haven't talked about so far, like stuff like the, the final scene between Paul and Hitler or the sort of the climactic scene with Chamberlain, Paul and Hugh. I liked, I, I enjoyed the scene where Paul is on a train going from, he's moving from Berlin to Munich with the entire like entourage of the German government. And he's like having to hide the papers on the train behind a yeah. mirror, also hide the gun that he has. And so it, it's, I thought that was just interesting tension. Like that, that train scene, I thought, I thought was interesting tension. Yeah, it was good. I wanted more of that. Like, you know, I thought, I thought that pistol definitely would have wobbled out from underneath that yeah, wash base. That's exactly what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, first of all, that like trains jiggle, <laughs> like they're not perfectly yeah. sort of steady. So like, yeah, that envelope's going to shift just enough to drop behind that mirror or yeah, the gun's going to fall off. What if it dropped just enough on. so it was in the center of the mirror and he'd never been able to get it out again? Yeah. <laughs> Roll Show credits. me that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted the, I wanted the, a, a really convoluted subplot of Neville's um uh, Chamberlain staff going to that butcher shop to get to get some meat after they complain about getting all the vegetarian <laughs> food is that, that I really like that that, that was a really interesting inclusion I, I I I wondered was that is that historically that accurate because that's a very specific thing to include yeah so so the Hitler Hitler vegetarian stuff absolutely mm. now I would need to look at the menu for for what it was in history, but I would be shocked if they would they would have a major sort of feast or whatever it's called a, a major meal at one of these things and only have vegetarian options. That seems very odd. I mean, maybe it's a power play from Hitler. You know, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps so. Um, but I thought it was it was a funny inclusion. Like there is not, there's some decent humor in the script, mm-hmm. but I, it was just interesting. it's well written. Yeah, it's yeah. it's certainly. In 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 the dialogue, it's well written. Although one of the the the, the, the British uh, typists is heard going, "If you could, if you could get some towels delivered to the room, that would be amazing." Which amazing wasn't something wasn't a Not piece really. of vernacular that was really used in that in that sort of context. I thought that that was a bit jarring. I was like, "Oh, okay," but Could've yeah, that 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 is nitpicking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
But well, Rob, I mean, was that your favourite scene? What, what was your favourite? No, my favourite scene, I, I liked, I just thought that was a funny line. My favourite scenes are, as I said earlier, Chamberlain getting on the planes to leave because they chose to do it verbatim. Um, mm. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any other way you could have done those scenes because they're so iconic. You know, we've all yeah, seen the picture fair. of of Neville with his bit of paper flapping in the wind, um, which I think that's quite a cool allegory for what happened. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it annoys me as well. It's a much so, better allegory than the storm clouds. Exactly. I just going to get onto that. So they really laid those on heavy. They really did <laughs> lay them on thick, didn't they? So obviously we, he leaves, and that's all fine. They don't they don't really milk that bit of him leaving. Um, and then when he comes back, you get. He's, you know, Chamberlain starts his speech of saying how, you know, he's he's met with Hitler and it's all gone well. And then they pan upwards and you see some clouds and it's like the the storm of war is upon us. You know, it's all very sort of beat you over the head sort of thing. But I wanted so much more from that scene. One, I want didn't want them to pan away from Chamberlain saying his speech because yeah, I, I felt him saying it all would have added weight it would have been great if it if it transitioned to him in the House of Commons giving his peace in our time yes, speech. That would have been it? nice. But then I felt there was a missed opportunity from the film where you could have had his words over a montage of, say, um, you know, Wehrmacht troops mobilising or Hitler having, a, like, interspersed Hitler laughing about the agreement, saying, oh, I've sold them up the river, I'm actually going to do this. You know, you could have shown the actual, you know, how Hitler was duplicitous and how, you know, Chamberlain had been made a fool of. You could have showed that as well. I think they just missed an opportunity there to show us McKay deciding he wants to join the RAF. Like, it sort of, mm. there was just a missed opportunity. But I love the scenes where they recreated the the newsreel footage because I just wanted to see Irons be Chamberlain more. Like, I, that's my... It's my takeaway. Yeah, you know. yeah. For me, I would agree there, Rob. I think they're some of my favourites in the film as well. I enjoyed it cinematically the way that they recreated and, and re- reposed those shots because there's some brilliant newsreel footage of that survives, and mm. you can go and watch that, and you can see that Irons has clearly studied his mannerisms and the way he moves his arm, yeah. and even down to there's a little bit of newsreel of where he's about to leave for Munich, and he. He quotes, my father always said, if you don't, at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. I'm going to go and try again. And that is possibly to our 21st century ears is probably quite a clunky political statement nowadays. Yeah. But it, it, it's also telling of, of Chamberlain's you know, character and what he was hoping to achieve. So, I, yeah, I really love those shots. And I love the plane shots, the, um, the really Super nice. Electra. Gorgeous plane. Um polished polished um uh, metal bodywork just looks those planes of the of the 30s target just for an anti-aircraft gun <laughs> well you, you 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 shouldn't shoot down diplomatic planes rob that's not that's not fair that's not done but yes you should, but you should shoot hitler but he didn't you know yes i know i know that would have been a what if film wouldn't it um <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the scenes with irons was with the standouts were they i i thought yeah. he looked so spot on I mean, when you compare it to previous depictions, so we had Roger Parrott in The King's Speech, we had Ronald Pickup in Darkest Hour, and we had Jack Shepard in Into the Storm. And they're all they're all varying amounts of depiction on screen, granted. Mm. But none of them looked quite as close 
to Chamberlain as Irons, although Irons is possibly a little bit more grizzled than um, than Chamberlain, and obviously, as we've said, his voice is a little deeper and a little bit more gruff than than the mm-hmm. relatively soft-spoken Chamberlain. But you could um, sell him. You could sell an, a, a Chamberlain biopic with with Irons now. I think that's absolutely clear. yeah. I would watch it if it was if it was Irons in the title role and it was a uh, um, darkest hour esque approach to say going the from th- thirty seven to nineteen forty. That would be a great film. Yeah, like, that'd be brilliant. Um, up until Norway, that would be really interesting. That would be great. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe we can have that now. We can show. Chamberlain in the war because I don't think that ever gets really explored. No, no. Well, people don't realise that he was the prime minister for you know. Yeah, they tend to six think months that after that Churchill just into the war appears where war's declared. But no, it was two one bit years where he wasn't in charge. You know, it's like. And I think I think there's an interesting story there because you're basically watching a man who saw everything he was pushing for for years just like fall apart into a catastrophic war that, yeah, exactly. that does not go well for his country no. <laughs> while he's in charge. Mm. In 1940, I, I found a little um, bit he'd written in a letter to, to, uh, to one of his friends before he died. And he says, so far as my personal reputation is concerned, I'm not in the least disturbed about it. The letters which I am still receiving in such vast quantities so unanimously dwell on the same point, namely without Munich, the war would have been lost and the empire destroyed in 1938. I think Harris has probably pulled a great deal from, from that sentiment there in that it appears that Chamberlain felt that buying that time in, in 38 was, was very pivotal to, to how things developed afterwards. And he, he's also dying of cancer. So probably quite exactly, reflected yeah, on yeah. his life, you'd think as well. I think I think that mm. and I think that's part of the reason that we kind of opened some of this discussion with the discussion of how Chamberlain is portrayed and why I think it's going to be very divisive. Like uh, I was reading comments on, on your on your Twitter account after you said you were going to review this movie, you know, over the weekend as people were watching it. And there was a there were several people that were displeased with kind of the favorable light that that Chamberlain mm. is put on in, in this movie. And I think that a lot of it does come back to the idea of like we know how this story ends like yeah. we we know the fourth act of this film mm-hmm. and and what happens with all these decisions that are made um and so it, it's hard to properly judge how people viewed the situation at the time and why they made the decisions that they made yeah definitely definitely it's um yeah it is interesting in that regard i, I think I think Chamberlain will continue to be one of those divisive figures. I don't think we're ever going to pin mm-hmm. what we really think of him. You know, it's not solid as Churchill as this sort of war-winning underdog coming coming up from the ranks, you know, becoming this war-winning hero. Chamberlain's always sort of, oh, that's the man that caused the war. We don't talk about him. You know, it's sort of, it will divide opinion. But uh, Depictions like this will help, perhaps. People go away and learn more about the man and yeah hopefully go and appraise him themselves because it's it's widely forgotten that he was in government after he he resigned and left office and kind of lost in the whole revisionist debate around appeasement and and that aspect of his premiership
talking about appeasement, chaps, we're coming into final thoughts. Did the movie appease you or did it appall you? Ooh, that was a fantastic segue. Wow. I'd written that down. I wrote that down. Yeah, earlier. I know. I, I, I <laughs> That's saw you broken my mind. <laughs> Wesley, you're the guest. Please go first. I think overall, with all the problems, you know, around pacing and length and, and some of the characters, I enjoyed my time watching the movie. You know, I think that was almost certainly colored to a large extent by my knowledge of all the history that's happening around this, that the movie is largely not interested in showing you. You're kind of on, on the historical sort of railroad in, in that regard. But I, I did think it was interesting. And I think that, you know, I generally had fun watching the movie, even if, if it points, it, it drug a little bit and didn't have kind of the tension I was hoping. Um, and it was helped by, by what I thought was a, a great portrayal by, by Irons, for sure. Love Jeremy Irons. Um, yeah. And so I, I would cautiously recommend it to people as long as they are not, they don't go in with too high of expectations. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I enjoyed it. As a, well, it's a competently made film. You know, the camera work's mm-hmm. really nice. Mm-hmm. The editing's quite well done. Um, everything in it is competent for a movie. There's nothing that's lacking. But I just think the story itself could have had more tension, as you say. It could have had a bit more punch to it. Could have been trimmed down a little bit. I felt two and a bit hours was just a little bit too long for me. I found myself getting a little bit bored at the start and towards the end because mm. I was like, right, come on, we know what happens. And I think maybe with, because I, I don't fully want to recommend it. I'd recommend if you know nothing about the Munich Agreement. This is a good starting point, but it's definitely not something to sort of, if you're looking for, don't frame this as your understanding yeah Mm -hmm. you know don't base a thesis on this we probably could um but it's sort of like yeah so i just think it's it it, we don't rate movies but it's like a it's just a seven out of ten if it had more historical bits in it if it had a little bit more maybe chamberlain and hitler talking maybe if you saw a little bit more about the what the things the movie's called munich but you see fuck all the entire the the entirety of the munich agreement i'm sorry uh, this is final thoughts but the entirety of the munich agreement happens off screen right they disappear upstairs and suddenly they have an agreement and they come downstairs to sign it yeah yeah it's so true exactly um you know i the movie's called edge of war but i wish it put me on the edge of my seat and and it didn't for me i think cinematically it's competent well made um and as we've said about other films before that almost adds to the that oh i wish that skill had been put to better use in that we'd had a little bit more of a of a darkest hour approach where we get a look at more of the 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 actual politics and the diplomacy that was going on Uh, the 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 mise-en-scene of the film felt really good i liked it i thought that was a very very strong aspect of the film yeah. Some lovely old Mercedes, um, probably the wrong year, but who knows? Not a, not a car expert. It's just very believable um, timepiece, isn't it? it, it it's all yes. very. You, you sit yeah. there and you think, oh, this, yeah, that that looks like 1930s Britain. Mm. That looks like 1930s Munich. Um, it's it's what you have in your mind. Uh, some of the aspects didn't work for me. Um, while I loved the fact that it was a it was an Anglo-German cast and it drawn strengths from both, some of the supporting characters were underused a little bit. I thought. Uh, some of the scenes just did not work. I thought their meeting um, in the same jazz pub that they'd been to in 1932 seemed unlikely 
a that German jazz club probably wouldn't be as busy as it was now because jazz was frowned upon in Nazi Germany. They definitely wouldn't have sat down next to a, um, an SS officer and had that conversation in oh, Germany. Yeah, I didn't even think about yeah. <laughs> and and the fact that Paul even goes, um, Leggett, you would make a terrible spy because he just sort of like takes <laughs> the paper from him and looks at it. that. That scene is someone should have looked at that and gone, this doesn't quite work. It doesn't look right. If we could, that, that whole scene could have contained an awful lot more tension. Um, yeah. If it had been done elsewhere and in a different way, I just didn't, I thought that was a, that was a low point in the film in terms of attention to, to detail in the way mm. they were trying to present it. I'm um, sure there's bits in the book that make that make sense. They just I'm didn't sure there are. The yeah. Yeah. Film. Uh, it's probably annoying. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. As a, as a piece of cinema, I enjoyed it. Um, and, and Wesley's uh, skillfully laid out all of the, the little elements that he's picked out there. And I, I agree with him completely that um, can't really be seen as uh, a representation of the Munich agreements. And I agree with you as well, Rob, that it's it, it can't be seen as a, a, something you can base your understanding of Munich yeah. on. Yeah, because obviously... Be, cause- that's a problem because it, it, obviously because it never says at any point apart from very at the end it goes you know this was fiction yeah because it's presenting itself as fact in places it i think it that that's what detracts a lot of, from the movie for me just because of what this could potentially do to the you know um hive mind sort of way we sometimes think about events yeah yeah the understanding of it going forward perhaps i think the fact that they give you so much of that side plot or the, the main plot basically uh, away from the agreement being signed behind doors is used to take away from showing you that they they make a conscious decision in both a narrative sense and a cinematic sense that this film about munich is not going to be about munich it is going to be about this tale of two friends and the espionage that they're attempting to do um and i i thought some of the choices around that i mentioned earlier with the document reappearing at the end I thought that didn't quite make sense in terms of a narrative for the film. So mm-hmm. there's there's little bits that kind of fall down as well as some of the more larger narrative choices of, well, yeah. I wish I'd seen more of the Munich Agreement. But yeah. I mean, it's not a film about the Munich Agreement. It, it was perhaps sold as that in the in the um, the trailer. Um, but really, I suppose it's more of a um, a fiction piece set to the backdrop of it. And if you go into the film with a knowledge of Munich and expecting a espionage film set to, against the backdrop of that, um, then it certainly works. Oh, of course, it's not as a, it's not as explosive and as, you know, alley tally fest that we usually do. Um, we can do highbrow as, as you've seen. So uh, Wesley, we want to thank you a lot for coming on. Um, if Just give people a little bit of uh, background in what you do, where they should find you, how they can they listen to your podcast? Cause me and Matt uh, listened to your your Munich series for this episode, and it was really bloody good. So you can find my current podcast at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. That's been going since about 2020, mid-2020. Um, and then before that, I did History of the Great War, which started in 2014 and ran until 2020, which is the history of the Great War. I'm very bad at naming things. Um, and that, that covers from 1914 to 1920-ish. Um, 
and then, so yeah, and then you know, history of the Great War, uh, history of the Second World War is kind of a weekly podcast covering in a chronological order the history of the Second World War. What that means is, is I'm on episode eighty two this week, and I have not yet gotten to September nineteen thirty nine, but uh, that's that's how I roll. Great, that sounds fantastic. Massive undertaking. Massive undertaking. Yeah, I'm I like so... small projects. <laughs> <laughs> So please, everyone, go go listen to Wesley's podcast because it's really, really good. Um, you'll learn a lot. So as always, thanks for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Fighting on Film. Check out the website, fightingonfilm.com. The website now has a search bar, so you can look up to see it if does. we've done a film or not. Um, no more scrolling through the blog, hoping to find something you want to listen to. <laughs> you can now search. It's a miracle. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining us, Wesley, and thanks to everyone listening. Bye. Bye now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.